Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Interviews Podcast, a series of brief conversations with leading China experts on key issues in the Sino-American relationship. For more interviews, videos, and links to events, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. This is Steve Orlands, President of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and I'm thrilled today to be joined by Ryan Haas and Bruce Jones, who are the authors of a very recent Brookings paper called Rising to the Challenge, Navigating Competition, Avoiding Crisis, and Advancing U.S. Interests in Relations with China. Uh, I won't go over their bios to save time, but you know, uh, Bruce is director and a senior fellow in the Project on International Order and strategy at Brookings, and Ryan is a senior fellow and the Michael H. Armacost Chair at Brookings, where he holds a joint appointment to the John L. Thornton China Center and the Center for East Asian Policy Studies. I should say, Ryan, that I just looked at your book program we did, and we have now 25,000 views of of that interview. So I hope that this one even exceeds that. Um, this is a, a, a must read. Those who have not read it and are tuning into this program, just go to brookings.org uh, and download it. It is, at, it is a very important uh, piece of work put out by Brookings. Uh, my first question is, is the simple one. Why did you feel the need to put this out at this moment? And either of you can answer. Maybe I'll start and Ryan should correct me. I think that'll be the normal course of the conversation. I'll say things and Ryan will point out where I'm wrong and and, and get it right. But it it really began, this whole project began uh, with a series of conversations that we had with our Chinese counterparts at the Wuhan uh, Internet Forum in 2017 and 2018. And at the time, I think our shared understanding was threefold, that there had been for at that point approaching 40 years a commonly understood framework for managing U.S.-China relations, and that that was running out of steam, that that was no longer going to be adequate to managing the relationship in the new realities. Second, that the baseline of that new reality was strategic rivalry or strategic competition. Lots of people don't want to call it that for lots of political reasons, but at core, it is a rivalrous competitive relationship. And third, that if that wasn't going to veer out into unwarranted conflict, that we needed a new framework for managing the relationship, one that could be understood on both sides and could be politically durable on both sides that acknowledged, frankly acknowledged the realities of the relationship, but nonetheless strove to stop it from becoming uh, conflictual. So that was the kind of generation of, of of the project. Uh, It took some time to get from an an initial idea to to where we are now, Uh, but that's, that's how it started. Ryan? Well, Steve, I I would just add that uh, I think it was important for us to put this piece out now uh, to try to inject uh, some positive thinking into the overall discourse in the U.S.-China relationship. Uh, This is a series of papers that were released in parallel. Uh, The Chinese counterparts released a paper in China. We released a paper in Washington, both ahead of our leaders level meeting in uh, earlier uh, in this month. And it identified areas where there are overlap in our respective views and areas where there are differences. Uh, I think that both sides agree uh, that it is preferable to avoid conflict if we can. Uh, Both sides believe that uh, the United States and China should work to coexist with each other and that there will be a dynamic interaction between each country to see if we are able to do so. 
these are important uh, areas of alignment. But it also was important for us to identify where there were some areas of divergence. Uh, we felt that uh, we could not subscribe to the view that our Chinese counterparts put forward, that uh, the problems in the relationship were a result of America's anxiety over its decline, or that the United States-China relationship would get better if the United States just got out of China's business. Uh, we think that uh, there are legitimate concerns that we have about uh, China's conduct, both at home and abroad, and as well as its behavior towards many of our, our friends in Asia and around the world. So we, we wanted to try to put uh, both the good and the bad out to try to provide as clear-eyed of a possible uh, insight into the overall dynamics and relationship as possible. And Steve, if I could just add one further sentiment, which I'm sure we'll come back through, which is that we wanted to articulate a framework that could not only be sustainable in the United States, but that could sustain substantial engagement with our allies. Yeah. And that had been lost during the Trump years in important ways, uh, but it also risked being lost with some of the kind of early statements out of this administration or so some of the voices in Washington who wanted to go in our sense uh, too far in what we called omnidirectional containment, uh, which just wasn't gonna get sustained buy-in from key allies that we think is necessary for an effective strategy over the long-term. Yeah, and when I remember I was with you in Wujun when we had these, these conversations and we were on the, uh, on the canals in Wujun having those conversations. You know, it, the paper makes a lot of assumptions that I'd like to talk about. One, it says China is convinced the US is in decline. Do you think that is a uniform view in China? Do you think the leadership believes it or it's a narrative put out by the Chinese media? And should that be the basis of the formulation of our policy? Warren, why don't you start? I, I think the basis of the formulation of our policy, Steve, is what maximizes our ability to influence how China pursues its interests and what maximally allows us to protect and advance our own interests and values. The question that you're asking is secondary to, uh, to, to that objective. Uh, and as a, just as a matter of observation, I'm not aware of a lot of debate at senior levels of the Chinese leadership over whether or not the United States is in a form of decline. Now we can quibble over whether it's relative or absolute decline. And we can also quibble over when uh, that narrative emerged and how enduring it's been. I lived in Beijing in 2008. Uh, I remember hearing discussions along these lines then, and I haven't heard uh, that, that discussion or debate mellow in the years since. We should be clear that neither of us are operating under that assumption. You know, Ryan's book, as you, as you know very well, Right. Uh, stronger, my previous book, Still Ours to Lead, they, they do not take as an assumption a narrative of American decline. Uh, but it's one thing to look at the underlying realities. It's another thing to look at the psychology of your, of the other part of the relationship. It seems to assume that China, because it's viewing U.S. in decline, is making assumptions in their policies that they're going to surpass, surpass the United States which I think, you know, I don't know who you're talking to, but that is not the conversations I'm having with the senior people in the Chinese government. In fact, they're quite careful not to say that, um, but it's, it's, you know, I guess it's different folks. You say China's leaders have become more outspoken about the lessons that their government governance model can offer others. Isn't that more about not interfering with their governance in China as opposed to governance in Africa, Latin America, Asia? I think we've gone well past that point. I think there's a 
substantial amount of Chinese engagement on governance models in the places that you just mentioned around technology, around development models, around health models in the multilateral space. I think we've long since passed the point where China is not exporting any sense of its uh, own arrangements. That's not to say that it's sort of rigidly doing that. It's not. Uh, but yeah, I think we're long past the point where it's it's merely worried about non-interference internally. You agree with that, Ryan? Yeah, I I do. I don't I don't subscribe to the view that we are in the midst of a universalistic ideological struggle with China, similar to the one that we had with the Soviet Union during the Cold War. But I think that both the United States and China believe that their governance models hold solutions to the problems that the 21st century presents. Both countries believe that their model uh, is capable of uh, addressing the problems of their citizens and offering solutions for people around the world. Uh, I think what we've watched is the Chinese become less about uh, making the, their model has uh, answers to other people's problems as well. It doesn't mean that they're trying to force it down anyone's throat or for that matter that their model is becoming any more attractive, it isn't. Uh, but uh, there are aspects of their model, uh, whether it's on uh, suppression of dissent, uh, controlling of discourse on the internet, um, that, that the Chinese are using and normalizing in ways that uh, other autocrats or, or would-be autocrats uh, are finding uh, to be attractive. Are the autocrats going to the Chinese to ask for that technology or the Chinese forcing that upon these autocrats globally? Is this for you? Is it the Chinese government or is it Chinese companies that are looking to make profits? Not a huge daylight between those two things in this space, it seems to me. And, and, and the answer, I think, is much more the former than the latter. It's not, uh, you know, I don't see the Chinese out there pushing these technologies down the throats of other countries, but we're certainly seeing an engagement from other authoritarian autocratic governments looking to China to provide those technologies and support. We've seen quite a lot of that. Um, I don't think that's central to our understanding of what's happening in the relationship, but it's certainly it's certainly present. The uh, what do you think? How do the, the kind of the assumptions that are made? How do you kind of think about China's financial opening to Western companies? How do you think about China's application to join the CPTPP? How do you think about China's application to join the Digital Economy Partnership? How do those fit into your view that China is simply becoming more statist? It's interesting, you know, I, I'll have to be careful here because a lot of these conversations are uh, Chatham House or, or otherwise off the record, but uh, talking to senior people in the Chinese uh, financial sector, last time I was in Beijing, um, they make no secret of the fact that the financial opening has two purposes. It's about modernizing the Chinese financial system and it's about minimizing Chinese exposure to American financial sanctions. Right? And those two things I think go hand in hand. The stronger that China is internally, the, the less they're dependent on, on American models, the less exposed they are to American pressure. That's obviously in their interests. Uh, it's perfectly rational for them to pursue both of those interests. So second question, whether it's you know, rational for the United States to facilitate those, those changes. Opening up to financial services company that are American, European, Japanese, Korean does not make them less susceptible to US sanctions. It makes them more susceptible to US sanctions to the extent that they become dependent upon that. It, it, it actually, it's, it's the opposite. 
I well, mean, I, don't, I don't agree with that, but more importantly, it was not their perception of it, right? So the, the, the line that they were arguing is that it made them less dependent. I mean, it seems to me that it does make them less vulnerable to it because as in several other spaces we exist in, if we try to sort of torque that lever, we then impose quite a lot of costs on ourselves as well. I mean, it's sort of a very you know unusual relationship when right now where all the things that we could do to impose costs on China impose costs on us as well. And to a certain extent, vice versa. And the financial spaces is, is increasingly become one of those. Opening their capital markets. I don't understand an argument that opening their capital markets makes them less susceptible to financial sanctions from the United States or any sanctions from the United States. That doing it, if sanctions occurred, then these companies were required to pull trillions of dollars out of the Chinese markets, which would have a enormous effect. So I, I don't, I don't, I don't and, think- And enormous costs on us. And costs on, greater costs on the Chinese. I, I'm, yeah, I think it's- Steve, uh, Steve, I, can I just make two observations? The first is I, I think I broadly agree with the point that you're making that, uh, that a lot of the discourse about China turning inward and closing off to the outside world is overblown. I think the examples that you cite provide ample evidence of the fact that they are continuing to open in certain areas. I think that they have their own reasons for wanting to do so, which is perfectly fine. I think they would like to increase the rest of the world's dependence upon them, broadly speaking, and reduce their dependence on, on others around the world. But just to take a st half step back, Steve, I think that you're trying to turn this conversation into a bit of a caricature of a paper. Our paper is not about whether or not China is turning inwards or, or not. So we're happy to have this this discussion if you'd like. But if there's anything about the paper you'd like to discuss, we'd, we'd certainly welcome well, a chance I'm, to I'm, I'm going down my, we, I get to the more positive points, but I was just dealing with, with, with some of that. I mean, I think it's a great paper, by the way. I think it has in it some terrific suggestions, which I think the Biden administration, in fact, the use of the term guardrails uh, preceded then the Biden administration using the term guardrails. So obviously it's become a, um, a, a, important kind of paper for the administration thinking about it. But I'm trying to try to start with some of the fundamental assumptions and then build to the recommendations. Um, you know, what, and I guess partly, um, you know, there's a lot of talk about, you know, what you call the widening consensus. And what worries me is, is and again, maybe I'm characterizing it, but I don't see that consensus. I see a lot of dissent from that consensus. I not only see it in the think tank community, I see it in the political community. I see it in progressive Democrats. I see it in others who are worried, number one, about a self-fulfilling prophecy. Number two, about the times that the consensus in Washington have been fundamentally wrong and cost Americans dearly. Neither of you are old enough, but I lived through the consensus on the war in Vietnam. And I watched my classmates die as a result of a wrong consensus. You're both young enough to have experienced the consensus on WMD in Iraq. And I think this consensus on China, this demonization of China that requires that we go to accepting this strategic competition has the risk of being a self-fulfilling prophecy. And what I worry about is the expenditures that are going to deprive our social programs, which Brookings talks so much, other other parts of Brookings talks, talks so much about from funding. 
that this stuff, if we're going to have the strategic competition, you go back to the Eisenhower quote. You know, it's, it's going to cost a lot for our social program. So I worry a lot about that. What if the consensus is wrong? So Steve, I think you'd have to work really hard to read this paper or read other of Ryan and my work and believe that this is around demonization of China. But it is fair to say, as I started with, that the starting point of this on both sides was a recognition that there is a central dynamic to the relationship that is competitive and even rivalrous. And if we don't acknowledge it, we risk it spinning out into outright conflict and enmity. So you can disagree with that premise, that's perfectly fair. But what this paper is about is if you accept that there is a competitive dynamic to the relationship, how are we gonna manage that competition ways that don't spin it out into conflict, into enmity? Because it seems to me that you can have a, uh, a perfectly reasonable set of diplomatic guardrails around a relationship that is competitive and rivalrous, but if it spins into enmity, if it spins into outright conflict, we're in a whole other world. Uh, and that's where this work is located, is trying to minimize the risks of that. Yeah, I agree. And, and Steve, we've spoken enough to know that uh, I share a lot of your skepticism about the idea of there being a hardened bipartisan consensus. I think that uh, the consensus decomposes pretty quickly. The sooner you sort of go down level by level as to what it is we're trying to achieve and what costs we're willing to pay to do so. But look, this, this paper that we're here to discuss today is trying to navigate a path between omnidirectional containment on one hand and unidirectional softening on the other. We don't think that either of those, uh, those poles are, are suitable as a basis for policy. And so we're trying to to lay the groundwork to chart a, a middle course that we think can maximize our ability to advance our interests with China. Yeah, again, I always think of kind of the way Harry Harding framed it years ago, which is three levels of, of competition. You know, economic, we compete with everybody. We compete with Canada, we compete with the UK, it's fine, no problem. Diplomatic, you know, we compete with the French, we compete with others in terms of where we wanna accomplish with our diplomacy and strategic is a whole nother part and when we compete strategically the way we did with the soviet union it creates uh, a diversion of funding that has such an impact especially on poor people in the united states uh, who need to benefit from those social programs and i'm i was uh you know i'm worried that that we're allowing kind of that discussion to go unchallenged that we're just going to say okay we're going what is it what is the kind of the framework you're putting in place mean for tariffs for instance Could, should we be reducing tariffs should we end tariffs or should we protect our industrial base through the use of tariffs I was never a fan of the tariffs of the Trump administration they've never made any sense to me as a way of managing the relationship with China they didn't work um, but to your earlier point, I mean, I think we just, it, it's simply not realistic to not think that we are now in a form of uh, competition in the strategic space with the Chinese. We're making investments, they're making investments, we're in an arms race in the Western Pacific. Those are the realities. We can argue against them, we can do that, but our purpose here is not that. Our purpose here is to talk about how we put guardrails around it so that it doesn't spin into, into conflict and it doesn't spin into enmity, which is a very different thing than competition. Uh, one of the things that was challenging in the conversations with the Chinese around this is the different um, 
connotation of the word competition to my mind that's not a negative term as you said we compete with lots of people this has a different character and the use of the word strategic competition is designed to invoke that uh, they were much more uncomfortable with the word competition the longer we went uh, in this in this conversation um, but I think that there is a serious risk I, I see the risk sort of in, inversely to you um, Ryan may have a different point of view it's that if we don't recognize the dynamic that we're in and invest adequately in the diplomacy to, to keep us safe within it, to create those guardrails uh, that risk spinning out of control and, and escalating in dangerous ways. So personally, I was very happy to see, as you, as you mentioned, I was very happy to see President Biden start to talk about guardrails to ask Xi Jinping for a, a process to, to put some of those guardrails in place. Let's see how much comes out of that. I'm, a, I'm hopeful at least that they're well begun in it. Um, the people inside the, the, the president's uh, core team who are working this one, I think, are recognize the risks in the relationship and recognize the need for that diplomacy, which is very different than where we were three years ago, let's say. Um, but that, to me, is the real challenge, is investing in that diplomacy, uh, investing in those guardrails to stop this relationship from going off the skids. See, I, I was just going to add one, one thought, which is that I, I think our paper talks about focusing on what advances America's interest. To be specific about your question, tariffs demonstrably have not uh, advanced America's interest. They have come at tremendous cost to our workers, to our companies, uh, without providing uh, offsetting benefits. So I, I just wanted to make sure that we close the loop on your question. And, and to Bruce's point, I think that we've put a lot of, the United States has put a lot of energy in the insurance piece in, in uh, recent months and years. Part of what our paper is trying to argue is that we need to balance that out with investment in the diplo diplomatic efforts as well. Because when diplomacy and deterrence sort of operate side by side, you know, they're self-reinforcing. When there's only one or the other, it's, it's self-limiting. Talk about some, I mean, I love this section. This was part of it I did love, which was the operationalizing persistent competition and calibrated cooperation. Talk about some of the things specifically that you suggest so people have a sense of it before they read the paper. Ryan, why don't you kick off? Well, part of, part of what we're trying to argue is that uh, competition and cooperation uh, are going to coexist in this relationship. Uh, the, the competition will be persistent, uh, but it need not inhibit uh, areas where it serves our interest to cooperate with China. And uh, the paper tries to provide a, a number of illustrative examples, uh, such as on preparing for future pandemics, uh, financial stability, uh, dealing with nuclear nonproliferation, Iran, uh, Afghanistan and other issues, and suggests that uh, there are ways that are better than others for fostering uh, that type of uh, collaboration, one of which is recognizing that neither side is going to be particularly enthusiastic about embracing an initiative that is viewed as coming from the other. And so to the extent that we're able to allow either middle powers or multilateral organizations to take the lead in having the United States and China moving in a common direction in support of that goal, uh, it could unlock greater opportunity for cooperation. Bruce? Yeah, I just amplify that and, and the point we were talking about before, the guardrails, uh, you know, both on the track 1.5 level and the direct bilateral level in relationship between policymakers, that's been lagging over the last several years. We used to spend a lot more time doing that than we do now. We'd like to see a reversal of that process. Um, uh, as Ryan mentioned, and this is, you know, it's not a normal thing in, in Washington to talk about multilateralism, but we do think that actually it's going to matter to managing the relationship to not always have everything fall into the bilateral space where distrust and lack of relationships can really impede collaboration, but to allow some third parties to 
to craft the space that we can we can work in. Uh, that's not going to be comfortable for either Washington or Beijing. But if you just look at the way we mishandled, both of us mishandled COVID, uh, if you look at the climate uh, discussion, it seems to me that there's uh, ample space for third parties to to help carve out uh, policy initiatives and, and frameworks for moving forward. And that the United States is going to have to get a lot more comfortable with uh, exploring those kinds of diplomatic spaces than we often have been. Yeah. Now, the paper is now about three, it came out four weeks ago now, five weeks ago. Um, and it talks yeah. about a prevailing pessimism. Um, I actually think that we hit rock bottom. Um, and and, and uh, the release of Meng Wenzhou, the release of the Canadian Michaels, the release of the Liu children, um, the Sullivan uh, Yang Jiechir meeting, uh, the Xi Biden meeting, the uh, establishment of an agreement to readmit U.S. journalists back, some cooperation on releasing uh, reserves from our strategic petroleum reserves, and that actually we're beginning to, that that pessimism is actually beginning to, to fade away. And there's a realization, which is what's make the paper so important, because it can kind of put in place structures that can maintain the positive points while dealing with the continuing competition. But do you still have, I mean, Ryan, do you still, are you still as pessimistic as you were eight weeks ago before the Meng Wenzhou release? No, I'm not as pessimistic as, as I was then, but I'm also not, you know, brimming with optimism either. I think that we're sort the relationship is settling into uh, an equilibrium that will probably last for the next year. My sense is that there's a pretty firm floor under the relationship with both leaders committing to remain personally engaged in it. But there's also a pretty firm ceiling on the relationship as well, given that domestic drivers uh, in both countries are going to have an outsized effect on the, the conduct of the relationship over the next year. But what, what I, I think has been a positive development over the past eight weeks, just stepping back from the list that you provided, Steve, which was very good, was that there seems to be a mutual awareness that uh, the relationship benefits by having a little bit more Zurich and a little bit less Anchorage in the sense of quiet, professional, serious meetings rather than sort of loud accusatory uh, exchanges. And it, it, it speaks to, I think, a view that what has needed to been said, what needs to have been said has been said, and now it's time to start doing what needs to be done, which I, I warmly welcome. And, you know, we start the, the section that you did like, the operationalizing persistent competition with the notion that we need to avoid excess expectations for good or bad, right? If we get too optimistic about where things are, we're going to be sorely disappointed. If we're too pessimistic, we're going to miss opportunities. And trying to establish some sort of sense of a, that's, that's why the word persistent, there is a kind of dynamic here that it's going to be at play for some time. Um, it, it can be managed. It doesn't have to spin out of control. We don't accept the kind of um, the kind of fatalistic sense that we're automatically heading towards conflict, we reject that. But it does require that investment in diplomacy, that investment in leader-to-leader -leader relationships, uh, that investment in, in multilateral mechanisms, a range of tools uh, to manage the relationship under the new realities that we, we find uh, ourselves in. Yeah, I think, I think it, it's, it's, it's great. And, the, and you know, again, I have focused on some of my disagreements with the paper, but I think by and large, I, I think it's it's an extremely worthwhile contribution. And what I've done is I've just whetted the appetite of everybody who's going to watch this to make sure they download the paper to read the positive parts. But it, it, it's really an extremely valuable contribution. And last question, I guess, is, is you had the president of Brookings sign this. 
which is pretty, that's putting a lot of weight. Is that ordinary at Brookings? Well, he was part of the dialogue that we had. He came to several of the sessions. He made contributions along the way. So, you know, this is not, oh, me and Ryan Ryder, and he had it his name. We tend not to do that at Brookings. This was, he was a, a partner in this process. Uh, you know, Ryan may have done more of the wordsmithing than, than me and John, but, uh, but in truth, we were along for the ride the whole way. Um, uh, so he's not, you know, he's just not an add-on. He doesn't sign his name to things that other people have done. He was a partner in this, in this process. I think that mattered. You know, he's a serious guy. He's, uh, he's got a lot of experience in managing different parts of the security agenda around China's borders. Uh, he's been in the sort of upper reaches of, of American defense policy for many years. So he has a kind of sobriety on this issue that, uh, that is helpful. Um, uh, he brought a lot of insight to the process uh, and a lot of realism. So that was a, a huge contribution, which is why his name is on. I want to thank you guys for giving so generously of your time. The paper is Rising to the Challenge, Navigating Competition, Avoiding Crisis, and Advancing U.S. Interests in Relations with China. It is available on the Brookings website, brookings.org. You can download it. I did, and as you can see, went over it pretty carefully. But Bruce, Ryan, thank you so much. Thanks for having us on. Thank you, Steve. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.